Blog Talk Radio. Straight Talk Radio, where we discuss business and politics and culture. This is Donia Keating. I'm your host. I'm coming to you live from the Seattle area. It's about 1 p.m. Pacific time on Wednesday, August 30th. Listeners, you can dial 602-753-1970. Christine will patch you in for live on-air questions or comments. You raise your hand by pressing 1 on your keypad. That lets us know you're ready to speak. And there's also a chat option uh, for private questions that end up rolling across my screen if they haven't already been addressed or they're not scheduled to be addressed. So, Today, we are speaking with our final candidate for city council on Bainbridge Island. It's Ted Jones. He's from the South Ward. Um, and we plan one final broadcast as we get closer to the election. And in that one, I think we'll give our assessment of each candidate. I don't know if we'll go so far as endorsing, but just kind of putting that out there. Um, some basic housekeeping items. As always, we welcome everyone to call in. We don't care who it is. Um, we are welcome. Um, with we, we welcome strong and passionate opinions. We're fine with all that, um, sharp elbows, whatever. But anything that gets a little crazy... She just is, uh, and sometimes she even does it before I can talk her into letting people remain on the line so I can pick their wings off. So um, let's just get to it and move over to the studio line to see who's out there waiting for us. I think we uh, probably have Ted and somebody else. Ted, are you out there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? I can. It's like, what's that commercial? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> right, right. Uh, thank- All networks are yeah. the same. Thank you. Um, so it looks like we also have Charles out here. Yes, I'm here. Awesome. Hello. So, t- Ted, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, some bio, your background. Give us some highlights. Sure, sure. Um, well, first off, it's really glad. I'm really glad that you invited me to be on this show, and I want to apologize for. Uh, being so hard to schedule. I've been out of the area uh, quite a bit recently on my, my day job with the federal government. and um, But I'm here, and I'm glad you've given me this opportunity to talk to your network. Uh, I grew up in just outside Washington, D.C., in McLean, uh, CIA neighborhood, CIA parents. Married my mm-hmm. high school sweetheart. Graduated in 1981 with a civil engineering degree out of GW. Uh, George Washington University, and stayed there long enough to get a master's as well in 88. Uh, My entire career has been with uh, the Navy as a civilian civil engineer, and I started out in 1981 working out of an office in D.C., and they sent me to Indian Island just off Port Townsend, and that was my first exposure to the Northwest, and for the next 12 years I talked about how lovely it was until we had a chance to move out here. Moved out here in uh, 92, my wife Wendy and our two boys, and we've never looked back. We love Kitsap County. First, we're in Silverdale, but we've been on Bainbridge Island now for 20 years. Okay. Um, you know, it's kind of – no, go ahead. No, I have something to say when you're done, but go ahead. 
Sure, sure. Um, some professional uh, qualifications I've got. I've been uh, an ocean engineering project manager. I got my hands dirty on deck with uh, lots of uh, uh, cable projects, deep sea cable installations, and uh, high capacity ship mooring projects around the world. That was uh, always very fun. Uh, very challenging, but fun. Um, many times in my career I've had to become an expert at things that were very new to me. Uh, within six months of uh, seeing my first mooring, I was the Navy's expert on mooring technology. Uh, two years after I saw my first cable, I was laying uh, 300 miles of cable on the seashore in uh, uh, the Bahamas. So I, I love that sort of exciting project work, but unfortunately, like everybody in their careers, you wind up moving into program management. And I've been an ocean <laughs> engineering program manager, an environmental program manager, uh, a facilities program manager, which I am now. And I had a short detour as a uh, process improvement guru uh, using Lean Six Sigma uh, continuous process improvement techniques. Awesome, awesome. I mean, I thought it was kind of funny. I was going to say that, you know, with the whole CIA background, and you, I don't know how it it affects other people, but for me, it kind of makes me less forthcoming about certain information. And you, you're like, you just gave us a map, so we're going to, you know, know where you are and everything. <laughs> and and. Uh, <laughs> You know, a short little story. My father, uh, shortly before he passed away in 2010, was talking to my son, and my son said, uh, Grandpa, can you tell me a, a, a CIA story? And he said, No, damn it, I took an oath. <laughs> that was cute. So, Charles, you're out there. Why don't you give us a uh, quick bite of who you are? Well, well first off, I'll say I, I'm not scared of the CIA. They are or the FBI or whatever, they already know most of whatever they need to know. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just a question of whether you got that much to even hide. Um, I, my background is tech. Um, I uh, started off as programming. I've been an uh, independent consultant since uh, 1983, and I've also been uh, helped found the West Hunt Technology uh, Professionals Association, later the West Hunt Technology Association. We helped start the West Hunt Coder Dojo. And we have a long history of working in a way to like uh, look for triple bottom line technology, helping the technology community in this region, not just for itself, but because we realize that's where things are headed. So we're uh, always looking to inspire and see if there's better ways of doing things instead of just repeating uh, what we've done in the past. So that's kind of my background. Yeah, I'm not going to get into me. I mean, you can search and Google, and some of it's going to be true and some of it isn't. But, you know, I'm not here for me. I'm here to talk to people like you, Ted. So. You've been in the area for a really decent period of time, um, and so I'm curious, and I'm sure others are, about the spark that made you decide to run for city council now. I mean, was it the island power issue? Was it cum cumulative? What was it? Well, um, if you ask my wife, she'd say I've been wanting to do this since I was 10, um, but that that's too glib. I, uh, <laughs> I've got 35 years, 36 years now of federal government experience, and I am nearing retirement, and... Um, I love what I do, and it's a full, uh, you know, full energy game. And I don't want to go into retirement and do uh, um, you know, something that uh, isn't really, really important and really, uh, really keeping me busy and challenged. Uh, I've looked for other ways to be involved in the city. For example, um, well, actually, in politics as well. Uh, back in 2008, I was at the. Uh, um, caucuses for uh, the presidential election, and there was a record turnout, as you all recall. Uh, Woodward School looked like it was having its auction, 
and I was in my corner with the the 333rd precinct and I kind of stepped up to the plate and started uh, herding cats and organizing people and uh, you know nobody was appointed anything but I just took on a leadership role trying to uh, get us to a consensus on uh, uh, our uh, picks for the caucus and Phil Rockefeller uh, saw me and he put his arm around me and he said Ted you know I think you should become a precinct committee officer and I said, what's that? And he explained that. And uh, so then I ran and became a precinct committee officer for the total precinct for about five years. And so that was my first Democratic uh, experience here. I, uh, I've been following the things the city does uh, forever. Uh, I ran for uh, in the competition for the public works director back in 2013. And that was, uh, they hired a headhunter and it was a, it was a large national search, and I was thrilled to be the runner-up. Uh, both uh, Barry Loveless and myself got the entire eight-hour interview process, and uh, uh, he won that, but uh, that didn't discourage me from staying involved with Public Works. And uh, since then, I've uh, joined the Utilities Advisory Commission, and uh, we you know, that's uh, wetting my whistle for many of the things that the city does, and it's also uh, told me a lot more about how and what the city does. And then you mentioned Island Power, and uh, that was one of the issues uh, that I've been very involved in. I was uh, one of the early organizers with uh, Jane and Steve, and um, that was great. Uh, it was a really wonderful experience. Uh, through Island Power, I got to... Uh, as you may recall, it started with a lot of canvassing uh, the community for just what was their level of interest in a uh, public power alternative. And I spent uh, many hours in front of uh, the uh, the farmer's market um, uh, getting signatures. And I stayed with that uh, process uh, up until about a year ago. And um, I thought about running two years ago. Um, so this isn't a brand-new issue, and uh, okay. two years ago I thought about it uh, too late. I probably decided maybe I should form a committee about May, and that was six months too late. Okay, so here you are. Uh, let's talk about the issues. Uh, on your website, Charlottesville is at the top. I mean, more of a national issue, but I think it kind of trickles, trickles down on the way. Um, and then you stick with the more national dialogue um, about protests and activism and everything else, and then you come back down to the local flavor. Uh, regarding the island's natural environment and planning and code enforcement, and I think I saw affordable housing in there and climate change and trust in government. But I'm going to start with Charlottesville because it's at the top of your list, and um, I'll probably have a bit to say about that once you're done um, kind of giving your intro on it. Sure. So uh, it's been a while since I wrote and posted that, but uh, I grew up in, in Virginia, and I've always seen the um, – the mixed uh, message, the mixed opinion on what are the heroes of the Confederacy, what do they mean to America today. And um, you know, Virginia came up with a, a really unique holiday that nobody else in the world has, uh, uh, King, Lee King Jackson Day. So we've got Robert E. Lee, uh, Martin Luther King, and Stonewall Jackson all on the same holiday, which is right. uh, pretty strange. And I think there's been a great distortion uh, since the 50s on what uh, a lot of the symbols of the, the Confederacy really mean. And they, they come into play, they get uh, the Confederate flag and now the statues 
uh, tend to get glorified more and more by people who uh, are taking an, op an opposition to the civil rights issues of the day, whether it was uh, segregation, uh, the bus counters, or sorry, the buses, the, the lunch counters, the workplaces, the military, uh, and now uh, through the Black Lives Matter campaign. I just am not buying that the symbols of the Confederacy need to be preserved um, for the reasons they're saying. So I'm glad to see the symbols come down. Um, uh, um, greatly saddened to see that level of violence in Charlottesville, uh, you know, in that beautiful campus. Uh, the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, to be precise, has done so much to overcome its uh, segregation, its past, and I don't think that's anywhere a fair reflection of the values of the state of Virginia. And that's really what my post was about, to, to think that uh, to let stand that uh, white supremacists, Nazis, and other hate groups um, are um, on any equal moral footing with the people who are standing around opposing them and shouting them down is just preposterous. And so I like, I think most of the country was really disgusted by uh, our president's uh, refusal to uh, um, put the blame where the blame lays, not on both sides. So trickling that down to, um, you know, the Bainbridge Island thing and city council, and I, and I yeah, you grew up there, and, and I think the thing that surprises me is UVA is an outstanding school. It's kind of like Stanford and some of the other um, non-Ivy League Ivy schools, and to see that type of behavior there was is obviously very um, disturbing to a lot of us. But I also think about the whole alt-right, alt-left, and I'll just come out and, and say that I think both of those terms are just very intellectually lazy shortcuts. I, I think that there are tools out there. I'm not going to say who created them, because there's a lot of different uh, debate around it, but I think it just influences people that are predisposed to certain thought processes. And I actually personally know people um, that are on factions from both sides who deliberately gravitate towards these types of protests to stir up angst and even violence. But I completely agree with you that Trump failed when he didn't just step up and call the white supremacists out without trying to, you know, wax poetic or whatever it is about so-called all-sides things. I mean, there is no equivalence. Um, but I'll also say that I'm not one of those people who thinks all of the statues and symbols should be sanitized from our society because, I frankly, I think that they can provide teaching moments and they're reminders. Um, and I also think, as a person of color, I mean, no surprise there, that the focus that I'm seeing over the years on the KKK and the skinheads and everything else, I consider that more convenient um, than tackling the more pervasive and insidious ways in which bigotry and racism can rear their ugly heads against people like us. It's, it's, we know where the KKK and the white supremacists and the skinheads stand, but you know, we're also in a self-described progressive town where the overwhelming majority of us are white, and I think that's a statement um, that needs to be um, – we need to admit that. We need to be honest about what that says about us. And when we think of racism in, in extremes, I think we allow subtle racism to continue wreaking havoc in people's lives. And I read an essay ages ago by an anti-racial activist uh, called Tim Wise, and it's called Everyday Racism, White Liberals and the Limits of Tolerance. And his quote was, since hardly anyone will admit to racial prejudice of any kind, focusing on bigotry, hatred, and acts of intolerance only solidifies the belief that racism is something out there and a problem for others but not me or anyone I know. Um, and he argued that because everyday racism is much more prevalent than extreme racism that we see out there and we talk about and gets all the media exposure, 
the former actually reaches more people's lives and does more lasting damage. And, and that's why it's more important to make an issue out of everyday racism as well. Um, so I've read, you know, Science Daily, NPR blogs, all this other stuff that has studies attached to them regarding, regarding the cognitive toll that racism can take um, in subtle discrimination and that it's actually more taxing on the brain and people of color than the outburst that we see from these idiotic white supremacist groups. So I, I think that I agree with you in terms of how this is certainly a Bainbridge Island issue um, in the sense that we're, you know, very involved with national issues and so forth. But I also think that you know, I don't know if you know it, but somebody came on the show when we first started doing it and, and made some very bigoted comments. And almost immediately after that, one of your most vocal supporters kind of went into a group and made misleading comments about me, you know, to try to either stop people from listening to the show or try to unnerve me or whatever it is. And, you know, like you, I've worked on the Hill most of my career, and I can handle that. But my point is we can talk about Charlottesville all day long and how disgusting those people over there are, and Trump, of course, for not immediately disavowing them. But we need to deal with the people of Bainbridge Island, too. And I don't think that you can control every supporter or be expected to publicly disavow them the way that we're asking you know, Trump to do the white supremacists, uh, unless, of course, they really are speaking for you. But I think eventually uh, the candidates that we have here will be and should be judged by the company they keep. So that was kind of the thought that I had when I saw, and every time I see Charlottesville and, and vigils and stuff, I think, well, are we going to talk about Bainbridge someday soon? So that's just kind um, of my semi-rant. Semi thanks for pointing out if anybody purporting to be um, – a supporter of me said anything disparaging of you. I mean, we've never met, and I have. Um, I would never go there my, uh, for any reason. Um, I also very much sympathize and understand what you're saying about uh, uh, we all have to recognize that it's a subtle bigotry that we have that, uh, yes, we can op all stop uh, uh, doing the obviously bad behavior, but, it, but it's subtle. And um, I know that I am not above uh, my upbringing, and that uh, I can make uh, insensitive remarks. And I've been called out on it by by friends and family, and uh, to uh, you know be careful. And you know along that same line, I to bring it back to Bainbridge, we are a diverse community, um, not maybe from a statistically uh, sense. I mean, you're correct that we're overwhelmingly white, but I I was uh, very proud of. Uh, Councilman Peltier bringing the uh, resolution when he first came into uh, the council, uh, recognizing um, our uh, our indigenous community and the Indipino population mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. our Japanese heritage. And you know, I just I think it's a true Bainbridge Island value that we recognize and celebrate uh, all all the origins that have brought us here, and. And, and take that extra effort to recognize that uh, not everybody um, came over from England or Germany. Yeah, it's a fair point. And, you know, I think that sometimes we, you know, and I, and I, I, don't, I don't think that we should get into superlatives or anything like that, but I think that sometimes it's a lot easier to accept certain groups than others. That's been my experience. You know, and you've got that whole, you know, the Jewish versus the Japanese versus, you know, the LGBTQ versus, the, you know, whatever. And I, my opinion is obviously that everyone uh, is welcome. And so I appreciate your comments about, um, you know, not being supportive of any type of issues like that, whether it's national or, or local. Charles, did you have any thoughts you wanted to interject here while we move, before we move to the next subject? We can't hear you. Are you muting yourself? Because you're not muted here by Chris. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Yep, I had my I had my phone muted to keep the background noise down. Sorry. 
Okay. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to reissue what you had said about, like, Charlottesville. People like to focus on the big, huge, obvious things. I mean, Trump was an idiot, I mean, to make equivalence with the groups opposing versus, you know, the skinheads and the Nazis. you got to remember the Nazis were a genocidal movement. So, I mean, it's like there, there, there's no place in our society for uh, a group of people that want to enslave or murder people because of the color of their skin or the perceived genetic differences. Um, that was huge. And I mean, if you could even say, uh, going back to this whole thing, this, this, the blow-up over Charlottesville and the, and the monuments, a lot of those monuments that were established were established 20, 30 years after the Civil War as, uh, as segregation and Jim Crow laws were being established. And mm-hmm. it was used as tools to reinforce that movement. And then later on, uh, it, the, the, civil, the Confederate flag became more of a symbol in the 1950s and the 1960s, again, to try to resist the civil rights movement. And I could say today, I noticed, because you know, I'm a white man who happened to marry a black woman, I'm very sensitive to the issue. And I can walk around and see how I'm treated in one situation where I'm alone and people don't know me versus when we walk in together or how you describe how you're treated in the same circumstances. I can see that every day. And, uh, and, it's, and it is subtle. I think that's the thing. So it's like we got to be aware of our, of our race, of our bigotry and racism, not just around skin color, but, you know, I think they're always trying to find new ways to draw a line in the sand. Oh, my God, that person I perceive to be Republican or that person I perceive to be Democrat, so therefore you like this or not like that. And it's, most of the time people are much more complicated than that. And it's a, it's, a, it's a whole way of trying to ignore the content of a message versus actually getting in issues. And that's really what I'd like to focus on. I really want to focus on the issues and get into what can we do to make things better here on Bainbridge Island. Here, here. So we're going to jump to the the big yeah yeah you're going to get like a cheerleading section here Charles so anyway the 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 big issue let's just broach you know all of the ones that are coming up especially some of the ones that have been on your website Ted um, and particularly social media the environment and so um, as you know I've been asking all candidates some of the same questions related to it because I'm trying to keep this kind of even and we've been watching candidate websites since their announcements to run and we've seen quite a bit of transition on a lot of the websites in terms of language some of it may be just coming to an aha moment or an evolution and some of it may be something else so I'm going to ask in the beginning for instance you made a mention of PSE's PR influence in leading to the city council's unanimous 6-0 vote against the recent island power initiative that we were talking about but you've taken that down and so You've already been very upfront with the fact that you were a former Island Power board member and an avid supporter, and I appreciate the fact that you're proud of that and you're upfront about it. Um, but you also said that you, indic- you agreed with their uh, vote to table the f- to, to f- forming the municipal electric utility, so I kind of want to give you a chance to, to talk about that. So we'll give you some intro comments here, and if anybody wants to add anything, we'll jump in. Sure, sure. Okay, so Island Power, um, I think there's a lot of misinformation um, and part of it goes back, uh, Charles, to what you were saying about, about labeling people. And I think mm-hmm. Island Power supporters have unfortunately been put into a uh, group of, uh, of a subset. And I think everyone I know in Island Power or that uh, talked to me in favor of municipalization uh, has their own unique and balanced reasons for taking such a position. Um, mm-hmm. I got into the issue uh, first listening to uh, Jane Lindley, Low Carbon Girl, and you know her very honest and moving revelation that she'd bought an electric car and she plugs it into a grid that's using 60% coal and how unsatisfying that was. 
And then when you marry that uh, um, moral uh, imperative with uh, what Steve Johnson brought to the game with his knowledge of the public electric utility, a, a movement was born. And uh, the goals of island power, from my perspective, and I can only speak for me, but the goals of mm -hmm. island power, from my perspective, were to get us to uh, a cleaner power source, initially. And then as I learned more about it and seriously studied the reliability data, I, it became clear to me that uh, Kitsap County is the worst county in PSE's uh, service area for reliability and Bainbridge is the worst among that. So reliability uh, became an issue. We talked a lot within the team about um, what were the ways to get to public power. And many of them have been mentioned over the years. There's uh, uh, forming a municipal group, which was what uh, ultimately went forward as a proposal. There's uh, working with uh, public utility districts. There's co-ops, um, all of which exist uh, in the multitudes in, in Washington State. So where was I going? Are you still there? Gone, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got into the background. So. My involvement with Basically, Island Power then, and, oh, right. and get back to where I am with PSE and why I changed what I wanted to talk That's the point, right, exactly. Right. Okay, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> throughout that campaign, when we were requesting signatures, the what people were signing was, do you want to have the city put municipalization on the ballot? And the whole movement was to bring this as a choice to the people. Uh, there's... There was no proposal by Island Power to run anything, to construct anything, to own anything. The issue was to bring the advantages of, the purpose was to bring the advantages of public power to the citizenry and the council so that they could have an informed dialogue and make a choice of whether they wanted to go that way. Obviously, I think public electricity would have been a good result for us. Does that mean that I would have voted as a councilman, if I were a councilman then, uh, for the study and for putting it on the ballot, and then as a citizen for putting it, uh, for enacting it, it would depend on what the data said. So I was happy when the city went for the study. I know a lot of people talk about $100,000 being, uh, you know, you could fill an awful lot of potholes with $100,000, but to spend a token amount on a study that's going to inform a decision that's going to absolutely reshape what the uh, government of Bainbridge is providing uh, would be nonsense. And so I was very happy when Doug Schultz sent out invitations to join his municipal task force and that he selected me uh, to be on that task force. I like to call that uh, your 12 experts and me. And um, I think that was a, a superb demonstration of an open and democratic process. Uh, the request for joining the task force was public. Uh, every meeting, I believe there were five of them, uh, was public. And um, yes, I know it's hard to hear a table full of people in City Hall meeting with bad microphones, but it was public, as were all the comments we submitted. And I think the result was the best we could have done to get a fair, independent, uh, feasibility study, which I cannot say the same for uh, the concentric study. Um, 
Concentric didn't even uh, respond to the city's request for proposals. So when we think about how do we get the information to, this, to the people of Bainbridge Island, you want to be able to trust who hired them. So if Island Power had paid for a study, everybody who wasn't already in favor would say, hmm, they bought that study. It must reflect what they want. If PSE pays for a study and brings it to the table, as they did, I would conclude that PSE doesn't want this to work. And look, that's what the study says. So the fair way was to get the city to do it. In the end, um, and I mentioned, and you mentioned, uh, I wasn't going to, but I, it's, it's out there. And I think that's, a, I, I like the way you've mined what my website said before and what it says now. Uh, there's no denying that PSE uh, put a lot of effort into persuading uh, the citizens of the island that this was a bad idea. And ultimately they won. They, uh, you know, through the open houses they had, through the, uh, phone, the uh, public phone calls they had, through the public meetings, uh, through the full-page ads, uh, they convinced uh, a large proportion of the island that uh, municipalization was a really bad idea. Well, and ultimately, yeah, when the be, city council voted to six, pardon? to be fair, though, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but you know, the thing that I find interesting about the dialogue, and I don't spend nearly as much time on Facebook as Charles does, but you know, I also get the information, you know, if it's rises to the level of, I guess, ridiculous, and I end up hearing about it because I'm a spouse. But, you know, there's a lot of very conflicting information out there from our community. And on the one hand, people say, okay, especially when they're trying to advocate for their position, they go, oh, well, you know, we're such a bright, educated group of, of people on Bainbridge Island, and we voted for this, and we voted for that, and, and so we're the, we're the kind of people that make informed, intelligent decisions, and, and we're, we're going to do the right thing. And then on the other hand, you've got people that say, oh, gee, you were able to be convinced by PSE to make a certain decision. And those things are not congruent thoughts. I mean, there people aren't stupid here. I mean, they were able to make their own decisions based upon the information that was presented to them from all sides. And, you know, I, I'm certainly not someone that can be convinced by PSE to to dispense with my, my critical thinking skills and come up with a decision. So I, I wouldn't project that onto the community at large. I mean, I would just say, just as a fair point, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that's what the community decided based upon all the information that they reviewed from all sides, and, and it is what it is. But my real question to you now that that has taken place, because I always have to remind Charles that I'm not looking to relitigate that issue per se, but to get some information from you as a candidate regarding because obviously there's a lot of concern out there because of your affiliation and because of some of the comments that you've made that somebody, given the right you know, environment, is going to try to revive this. And so that's kind of why I think your candidacy and the South Ward in particular has gotten so much attention. Um, I keep getting a hand raised here. Charles, you want to jump in and say something? Well, I was just going to say, without revisiting all the aspects of the issue, um, what I think we have to look at, I realize there's interest on all sides. Obviously, PSC, as a provider, wants to continue to provide and would do things to try to protect its business interests. Obviously, um, people, uh, the city, if given the opportunity to greatly expand its scope of services and, and expand its employment base and, and be able to offer a more comprehensive set of services, whether that's good or bad, they would be interested in that because that expands what the city can do in, in, in its, its capacities. Whether that is good or not for us, I can see where they would have an interest. I can also see where a, 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 a company like D. Hiddle, which pro promotes 
mini civilization um, wants to promote the positive aspects of it. I mean, there's all these interests. I like the fact um, that, that you're coming from an engineering background. And that's kind of where I come from. I come from an engineering background where facts matter, and you have to look at, well, what is the Bainbridge, what does the electric uh, network look like on Bainbridge? You know, and I looked at the fact that we didn't have a lot of the facilities here. We'd have to build them. And, you know, Bainbridge Island, the city of Bainbridge Island, has historically had a difficult time siting and, and getting facilities done. It's a very litigious, contentious community in many cases. I wish it was different in those cases. So is there a question, Charles? Yeah. So, so the question kind of comes down to, I think the reason this has become an important proxy for how we view candidates is it comes back to trust in the government. How do you assess a project on its merit, realize it's got some flaws, if it has flaws, and say, look, I can see where there's some benefits, because everything's got some benefits, but maybe this project isn't in the best interest of the city. Because if we're going to spend a lot of money you know, you know, condemning the network, for instance, maybe that money could be better spent doing, like, bike lengths. So I guess that's the thing. is I'm trying to get your sense, Ted, of how you see your priorities and where, you know, because I think that's leading the trust in government issue for a lot of people. They feel like the city okay. has, has got a so, blank spending spree. And how do, you, how do you constrain that, Ted? How do, you, how do you assess those priorities and maybe rein things in a bit? Sure, sure. So first, one comment I just wanted to make. Uh, um, PSE, I, nobody can fault PSE. Nobody should fault PSE in wanting to preserve the market share that they have. And they have been a reliable service provider on the island for some 75 years. Um, they, at the same time, they were absolutely uncooperative uh, in in any effort by the city to find facts. But but that's the relitigation part. I'm not going to go into. I did not see, though. You mentioned the goals of the city in it, and you know, when you think the city, who do you mean? So there's the council. There's the um, the city I mean manager the city government. and and the, the staff. Manager, and they the all have government perspectives. So from the city manager standpoint, um, I saw no overwhelming zeal to jump into this. I certainly haven't seen it from the public works department chomping at the bit to triple in size and figure out what new facility they've got to move into. I saw the council being um, very cautious. I, they weighed uh, pretty visibly the desire to get to where we could be after 10 years of this transition. Um, with the public sentiment of the day. And the fact that they voted six to nothing to table it, I don't think is a reflection that they're all opposed to it, but I think it's a real reflection that it's not a movement that's moving forward with any appreciable momentum at this time. So I want to make a distinction between my advocacy work in Island Power and what I would mm -hmm. do and what I see as my role as a candidate. Island Power is just me joining with like-minded people in a campaign to educate the island and to uh, try to influence an outcome for something I believe in. But a city councilman is not there to push his or her agenda. I see my role as a, as a city councilman would be to represent everybody, including opinions that uh, aren't necessarily my own. I have to look out for what's good for the government, not just my vision. I'm a good, sorry, good for the islanders. Uh, not just my vision of what I want the island to look like. It's what does the island want to be like in 25 years? 
So, so you come out in support of PSC's Green Power Program, and you advocated for that, and Green Direct, um, which I is haven't. kind of similar to to many, if not all, of the candidates. So you don't consider it greenwashing or inconsequential, apparently. Um, I'm worried about it but, being greenwashing. I've got the Green Power Program for myself and my household, and I mm-hmm. um, also testified to the city council the night that they elected for the whole city to do it, despite the fact that only 13% of the households were on it. And right. Okay, go ahead. I think no, I no, I, I was agreeing with that because, no, because I was part of the leadership uh, committee for the whole Repower uh, initiative countywide in addition to Bainbridge, and I was well, thank actually Thank you for surprised. mentioning Repower. You know, that was, that was another yeah. great thing that the island embraced. Exactly. And I used it and but not as well. and a heat pump. But not as well, though, just like you're saying. I mean, the, we and it goes back to me, I guess. I look at the we, – we, we talk the talk, but when we had an opportunity to sign up for something, I mean, the, the percentages were very low. So I was – you know, kind of commenting and piggybacking on your your mention of that. So yeah, um, indirect. So let me ask you. Go ahead. Um, so I was, uh, you know, I've heard in another podcast there was some discussion of green direct, and one um, one theme that was in that pod, podcast was that um, because of island power, because we uh, exhibited as an island this hostility to PSE, they purposefully did not bring us an offer to participate in Green Direct, uh, and now we're paying for it, that uh, much of the capacity that they want to build is already available and we can't have it. And that that whole argument did not strike me as even remotely true. If Island Power and all the people who signed the 1,200 petitions um, were asking for a greener power source, uh, PSE would is, is remiss in thinking that they shouldn't bring us Green Direct as a proposal to scratch that itch. Yeah, I mean, somebody's opinion is just that. I mean, as far as I was aware with the Green Direct, I mean, the window of opportunity just passed, and it's coming back up. So, I mean, in terms of candidates that are out there that we are looking to to assess based upon whether or not we're going to vote from them, I'm more interested in, you know, whether or not they feel that it's something worth pursuing. And then it kind of leads into the fact that we have a PSC's, um, they have a franchise agreement that's up for renewal soon. And so, you know, my question to you would be, since we're talking about all of this, what criteria would you propose to assess or evaluate their progress with our city, and what conditions, if any, as a city council member, would you consider imposing to determine the status of whether or not we should renew that agreement with them? Sure. So it's it's a negotiation, and it's uh, it's a tough negotiation because what what do you do if you don't renew the uh, the franchise. I mean, so, so we mm-hmm. have leverage, but we don't have absolute leverage. Right. Um, my criteria are the two goals I'm looking for, which were clarified very much by uh, everything that happened through the island power debate. Uh, we need to get more uh, a greener power source, and that can be measured by um, higher carbon emissions of, of PSE or Thankfully, now that we have a climate change advisory commission and we're going to do a carbon balance and a carbon budget on the island, we'll see just how much of our uh, carbon footprint is due to the electricity that uh, PSE provides us. So one first criteria is reducing the greenhouse gases that are being that are respon- that are generated as a result of bringing electricity to us. The second goal would be uh, to improve the reliability on the island. So would you go they as have far an IRP. 
their integrated resources plan. Uh, comes up every two years. The one for 17 is late. They're going to have another one in 19 and 21. All these happen right. before the franchise agreement gets signed off in, 20 to, in 2022. Right. We have the obligation to um, ask for aggressive renewable targets and for more solar and more biomass in their mix. Obviously, we're not the only ones who've been asking for them to get off of coal strip. Um, Montana and, and those, those uh, their shares there. But we don't have the leverage to force Coal Strip to close. And Sierra Club has done what they could as far as using the Clean Air Act to get the uh, earlier closure of uh, plants one and two. But three and four, that's the big question. How long are they going to operate those? How long are they going to continue to sign agreements to take that coal into the plant? And I think our aggressive targets, we need to extract for them goals of reducing in by 19 and again by 21, uh, showing us that they're serious about reducing their carbon footprint. Would you do something, um, some of the questions that I've been asking that have come up in the social media is, would you recommend requiring that PSC drop their current lawsuit against the Department of Ecology over the Clean Air Rule as a precondition of renewing their agreement? Yeah, that's emotionally and morally, of course. Um, but I'm not a corporate lawyer, and I'm not a, a government lawyer. And would I say you could require that as a precondition? No, I'm just saying it's a bad lawsuit. We should be opposed to it. We should we should leverage our influence to get us there. But you just is it a yes, no? I won't sign this if they don't drop their suit. That that's. Too simple a, a, a question for a yes/no answer. Okay, fair enough. Um, I'm looking at. There's a question that's coming up here. We talked about before. I get to this question, I wanted to make a quick comment because you were talking about the whole, you know, hive mind type assumptions that people make about groups, including Island Power, and um, the way that that kind of rolled out. And again, I don't want to relitigate that, but I will say that based upon some of the comments uh, and, and participations that I saw, that some of those people really didn't help themselves in terms of the way that they tried to sell. Um, the the MEU to our community and the way that they treated people who did not agree with them. Um, that was something that just reflected very badly on them. And then there were some people that were reasonable. Um, and then, they, of course, there were some people on the other side of it that were rejecting that that could have had a much better behavior um, than they did. So I just think it's one of those things where my whole thing, when you start talking about trusting government and the way that communities interact with each other, I will always – um, fall on the side of being as civil uh, as possible with human beings and not um, trying to uh, make your neighbors into bad people just because you don't share the same opinions. Um, but the question that just came up here was regarding your availability, I guess, um, or lack thereof on social media and in general. And there was some mention made about the city committee. I guess you're ta they're talking about the utility advisory committee, and they said you sure. missed half of those meetings. And there was some concern about whether or not it's an indication of what the community can expect if you're elected. So I wanted you to, to be able to respond to that. Okay. Yeah. No, those those are all very fair questions, and they're they're all things uh, that are on my front of my mind. The um, lack of social media. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a 59 year old guy. I don't. Uh, I didn't grow up with Facebook. I'm uh, still learning, and I believe I should learn all the time um, how to interact with social media. My Initial approach was to post things to my website and say uh, and post links and say go to my website. But I'm learning very rapidly that uh, uh, 
many more people are using social media every day, and frankly, I have to pick up the pace. So for anyone who thinks that I'm dodging them on social media, um, I just haven't kept up. And I don't want to make an excuse for that, and I don't think that's a reflection of, of what I would do as a city councilman. Um, I am, I'm working full-time, and I have a, uh, a good and important job, and when I come home, there aren't uh, three hours left to uh, do social media every day. So I am focusing more on answering questions. Um, I hope that uh, gets rid of some of the, some of the, the notion that I'm, that I'm avoiding anything. What I won't step into and what I try to avoid is uh, the questions that sound like dueling. You know, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, tell me now, are you for or against this? Are, are you the... Are you the progressive candidate or are you not? Are you the, the one that wants to waste money on the, the stupid bridge or, or what? You know, the, the very loaded questions that uh, deserve more considered answers, I don't want to play that game. So part of my slow response is I write careful answers. And um, I think people want more sound bites, and I will step up my sound bite game. On the UAC... Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, I mean, because there are some other uh, topics that I want to get to with you, and I think, we, you know, we're kind of, you know, getting in the muck with some of this stuff. And I agree with you on certain, um, to a certain extent about, the, you know, the fact that, you know, some people just want to just throw out yes or no questions, whether it's people that support you or otherwise, and I don't think it serves anything in terms of, of our community. Um, I wasn't good. Uh, I just want to give you one really good example. Uh, so in a perfectly innocent social media post. I had met with uh, Squeaky Wheels, and we had a delightful meeting, and we talked about a wide range of things that uh, um, surprised me, because I thought they were going to be primarily focused on non-motorized transportation, but they brought up everything environmental. And I put a one-paragraph post into, I think it was uh, Bainbridge Islanders, saying that uh, we talked about a range of things, and I used four words that apparently were a tripwire. I said the, <laughs> the promise of public power. And within 30 seconds, I had post after post uh, asking this island power question, are you just uh, trying to run for office so that you can continue to ram island power down our throats? And that's, a, that's the kind of labeling that I reject. And it's the kind of question that uh, uh, shouldn't have a, a quick answer and maybe shouldn't even have an answer at all. And, so, and that's a fair enough comment, but of course the other thing is that there's also people in social media who are, you know, putting themselves up as some of your more vocal supporters. And even if you haven't, con you know, condoned them or you haven't endorsed them, they're out there and they're making these comments like, you know, hey, well we lost the first time, but that doesn't mean it's over. And you know, this person is thoughtful, and they'll, they'll, you know, if if we get enough people on the city council, maybe we could change it over. And you know, hey, you know, let's put out a poll and debate about who's more progressive, you or your opponent. And you know, they're not helping you. So I, I understand you having that position, but I think that most of the other candidates that we're seeing out there are pretty much trying to, you know, stay above board. They don't have any supporters or opponents that are kind of going at it in the same way. So I think that sometimes, you know, the reason why people are really concerned about hearing from you more is because there are people that are speaking for you more than you are speaking for yourself. And, and that's, that's kind of having an impact. So um, and you indicated I that your approach is... I appreciate yeah, that I mean, feedback. You, and yeah, and you, you, you said that you don't... I was reading some things where you said that you the way that you 
resolve things on a you know complex decision making you don't come to the council with a fixed set of positions on big issues and all that other stuff and i don't think anyone's looking to cast a vote for a stone that's going to do all of that but i think that uh, in this day and age, we certainly need candidates that are more responsive and can provide some detail regarding their thought process or whatever. Um, so specifically, um, trust in government, you want to talk a little bit about that for about five minutes, and then we can move into something like affordable housing? Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a classic liberal, and as, as my high school civics teacher taught me, you know, the difference between the left and the right is the left is – is more afraid of the unconstrained power of big business, and the right is the more more con- afraid of the unconstrained power of the government. Well, I'm, I think in you know in, in the balance that government is got to be a protector of the little person. If you go back to um, you know, the happy times of, of FDR and uh, any of the the liberal movements of the 20th and now 21st century. Um, there's an important government role for protecting the little person, and it's economic protection, health protection, transportation, environmental protection. There's a government role. So I believe we have to have a government we can trust. I think some of the most dangerous talk I've heard in my lifetime was Ronald Reagan saying that the government is the problem, and that draws this distinction that the government is not you. The government needs to be you. We have to. The government has to be us, and the gov- and we have to be the government. So that's what I mean by trust in government. And when I was doing the island power uh, lobbying effort, let's call it what it is, uh, when I was trying to do that education campaign, uh, and we started running into uh, resistance, the most common thread was we can't trust the city of Bainbridge Island to do this, and they would name either their their zoning uh, issue, their uh, water utility issue, their uh, um, government emails issue, whatever it is, these issues persist in people's minds that disturb their faith in the government. And I would like, through the actions of the council and through the actions of the staff, to restore more faith in how Bainbridge Island government runs. People will not forget what they won't forget, but if they see more consistent zoning, more persistent and effective enforcement of code, um, less examples of, uh, of, of bad ideas going too far. That's so what, what I mean would you trust. do? But what would you do specifically? So in, in what area? Just, or just for getting trust in government? So a big piece right. is the, is the um, transparency. So maybe it's a perception thing. I look at the city's uh, websites, and I see that there's uh, a whole lot of information posted there, and I can read the minutes, and I can read the packages, and I can go onto Channel 12, and I can almost hear the conversations. Um, There's others out there. My opponent in particular says that uh, we need to be a lot more transparent. I agree with him that the candidate and the councilman need to be transparent, and I agree with everything Matt said about... uh, uh, as a councilman, he will keep a blog up that says what he's doing. I think that's a, a great thing for a councilman to do. I'm not so sure the city needs to do that much more uh, in general information. Um, Transparency is a piece of it. Open democratic processes. Virtual uh, topics need a lot of discussion. I, I know it's not efficient, but, uh, you know, 
one reading at a meeting and then two weeks later the final vote uh, and then people getting outraged six months later when the construction starts, uh, that's not enough community process. We, you know, for something like the Sound to Olympic Trail, you know, after the thing was under construction, we saw, we saw the artist rendering. Well, if we'd seen the artist rendering two weeks before the trees came down, um, maybe there would have been a little less hysteria. Okay. So you brought up two issues. I mean, uh, and you can t decide which one you want to take on first, but, I mean, the first one would be you talked about the trees, and you said that you wanted to make every reasonable effort to preserve and protect significant trees in natural areas. And then you also support – I know you support the pedestrian bridge. Do you also uh, support the Sound to Olympics Trail? So the Sound to Olympics Trail, I don't know if I support the whole thing or not. I mean, I love it from a regional thing, and you see the map, and it starts uh, practically at uh, Lake Washington or farther and could wind up at the Pacific over time. And their intent, you know, this regional intent is to come through Bainbridge, but it hasn't been well vetted. Um, it doesn't matter whether I support what happened between Winslow Way and, and uh, High School Road because it's, it's being built um, I am disappointed that, and it's a complexity due to the way the uh, grant money comes and from the, the people who tie strings to the grant money, that we have to accept and implement phases one, two, and three before we have the rest of this thing planned. And to me, I couldn't vote for approving the bridge or not approving the bridge until I know what the whole route is. Uh, in fact, at one point during the... Uh, first city council I meeting, meeting I went to where this was being discussed, the staff showed uh, north of High School Road the path going on both sides of the road. And it was almost just by council discussion that they decided, no, it's only on the west side. Well, whether we need this bridge or not uh, is tied to what that bridge does to the rest of the route. So if we, if the bicycles are expected to go to the west side at Vineyard, then crossing High School Road can happen on one side of the road. If uh, that bridge doesn't happen at Vineyard and we need to get from the southeast corner at McDonald's over to uh, the gas station on the other corner, that's an entirely different bridge. So I think before I can be for the bridge, um, and would certainly before I would ever vote for it, I need to know more of what the overall route is and, and how that's all going to tie together. As far as the specific design that's going on on the Vineyard uh, Nectal uh, Bridge, we are only at 30% design. I don't know if I would have voted. I think probably not, uh, but I don't know, um, to continue the design. I thought they were going to stop the design uh, because some very good questions were raised about the overall route. Uh, but still, proceeding to 30% will give us a lot more information about um, what it's going to cost. And I don't think the city is done looking for construction money for it. So, where would I, what's my real position on the bridge? I want to balance the current fiscal need, the current priorities in our budget, uh, 600 or something less, depending on whether we stop the study. As um, money is water under the bridge, we're looking at maybe another 400,000, which is not a small amount of money, uh, to make this bridge complete. Um, that that's a bad thing. That's uh, that's that's a current pain we have to endure if we want to go for it. But I don't want to dismiss it out of hand because I want to take a look. What do we want Winslow Way? Sorry, uh, 305 corridor to look like 25 <laughs> years. Yeah. Is 
are we going to look back in just 10 years and go, why didn't we build that thing when we had the grant money? Why didn't we build it when we had the chance? Uh, why didn't we build it before the state did something even uglier to our right of way uh, and made building the bridge even harder? So, yeah, you know, one is the and those questions are you know I guess the answer is that it's it's about making proactive decisions and not reactive ones. So sometimes you have to make the decision when you have the money, but more often than not, you should make the decision when it's the right time to make it. Um, but the other thing that came up for me in terms of thoughts about the trees is, and I'll move quickly to you've got about two minutes here to talk about affordable housing, but whatever, um, is that you know we we it goes back to again the you know the whole municipal electric utility and and even beyond that it goes to back to PSC because that was part of the um, reason for our reliability issues and so trees falling on lines and whatnot and so our ordinances you know trying to balance those interests when we say hey we we want to preserve the trees but you know you got to cut some of them if you want reliability and and trying to deal with that that issue um, affordable I housing got a couple of thoughts okay okay what happened at the quick. Suzuki property is, is a great illustration I think uh, the effort that uh, uh, neighbors and community have raised there to get the city to focus on saving the right trees there is the right result. There's a there's a, a pond, there's hundred some year old trees. Those are significant trees. Any highway any tree within twenty five feet of Highway three oh five is not a um, a long term tree for us. We may like them. Uh they're buffer for the homes that are there, that's very valuable. But these aren't our specimen trees, so I'm not opposed to cutting uh, trees that give us some proactive, some productive, useful result. You got to break an egg to, you know, some shells to make to make an omelet. Okay. So. So we are, yeah. So here we are, and I'm I'm getting the flag that somebody's going to cut me off. Chris, don't cut me off yet. We're almost there. Um, we've got about a minute left um, to talk about affordable housing, and you know, I just want to throw it out as a precursor so that everybody knows that you've listed ADUs and tiny homes as ways to allow um, homeowners and farmers to create affordable options. So my really, my question to you really here to wrap up really quickly is what your thoughts are about the fact that some people, not the fact, but the, the, the opinion that people have that we will never be able to, to leverage uh, inducing a developer to invest or build in a situation where it can't really realize a profit. How, so how do we how do we solve that problem? Can you talk about that as a council member in one minute or less? Uh, well, it's pretty hard. Um, <laughs> I know. I know. It's been put to me that the choice we give developers now is take the green option for higher density or the affordable option for higher density, and they choose the green one because they get a better profit. And... Um, I think we need to keep looking for innovative ways to do that. Uh, maybe the trade-off is, is somewhere else. Um, you know, we, we require a lot of developers. Maybe we can waive some of their other fees um, as part of building affordable housing so that from their standpoint, from the developer's standpoint, it, it still looks like a good deal and we get what we want. And I think there's uh, clearly a growing need for affordable housing as the our lots is faster than a wage workers. Wow. They are relentless. Okay. I guess I'm getting, we're, getting, we're getting cut off here. I, I guess that's a wrap. Um, we should have had more time. Uh, but I wanted to thank everyone for tuning in this afternoon. And uh, you can listen to this podcast on our website, um, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now apparently Player FM. Um, also on Facebook at backslash STR8 Talk Radio. That's Sammy Tommy Roger, the number eight and talk radio. 
Really appreciate Ted Jones taking the time to share his thoughts with us this afternoon, and I would just recommend you go to his website to uh, continue the conversation. Signing off at uh, about 2 p.m., and we'll see you next time.